This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 81. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy side of change. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, your host today, and my co-host today is Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here, as always. Yes, thank you for being here, as always. We've got a great episode, as always. Um, a little more entertaining, I'd say, than usual. Um, we try to keep it entertaining and informative at the same time, but I think the uh, entertainment value is probably a little higher in this episode, especially the uh, the hot topics we're going to get to today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to cover a few different things that I have never discussed before. Um, I don't know if you have, so this for me, it's going to be new. So be curious to see where we go with some of these conversations. First, we're going to talk about, we're going to answer the question, can robots be cute? Um I'm, I don't even know where to go with that. I'm going to have to totally follow your lead on that because I have no no good answer for you on that. But can, can robots be cute? We're going to talk about zombie pig technology, which at first I thought you were kidding when you said that's what we're covering. But then I realized you're not kidding. That is actually a, a real topic, like a real thing. So I never I, kid about zombies, Eric, ever. So. <laughs> right. Well, we'll see. We'll see where we we'll have a very serious conversation about zombie pig technology. And then we'll get into healthcare frenemies. We're going to talk about the evolution of digital lifecycle management. And then we're also going to talk about the need for warehouse management in all mainstream ERP systems. So those are our hot topics for today that we'll start off the segment or start off the first segment with. And then later in the show, we are going to have a few guests. We're going to actually have a panel discussion talking about uh, change management. We're going to unpack a real life active digital transformation change management case study um, using one of our clients as as an example and really talking through some of the lessons and best practices and um, tips based on our experience with this particular client. So on the show, we're going to have Nate Sroher, who is a practice lead here at Third Stage Consulting, along with Cameron Carpenter and Mitch Otteson, who are also part of the Third Stage Consulting team. And they are part of the change management consulting team for one of our clients, which is a, a billion dollar global manufacturer of chemical products. So we're going to talk through uh, their large digital transformation and some of the change management implications, lessons learned there. So stay tuned for that. And then last but not least, uh, Kyler, you have a chance to interview Christy Barber. You had a chance to interview Christy Barber not too long ago. So we're going to play you a clip of that interview where you and Christy talk about the evolution of QuickBooks moving from the desktop to the online version. And uh, this is something that's a big deal for QuickBooks users and small high growth companies throughout the world, but especially in the UK and other parts of the world where there's compliance issues that are necessitating or fueling or accelerating the adoption or the switch from desktop to online uh, with QuickBooks. So if you're a small or mid-sized organization, perhaps you're using QuickBooks, that'll be a particularly interesting conversation uh, for you. But before we get to those guests, let's talk about some of these informative yet highly entertaining uh, hot topics you have for us. Yeah, I really went for it on the titles here, but they will make sense and and be very digital transformation based um, relevant. 
So let's talk about the robots. Can they be cute? The question around this comes from a case study from StarTech Technologies, and this is in the UK. They use a delivery robot service, and what they focused on is the overall design of the device to make it look more quote-unquote adorable. So think about a, a pet or a child or those types of things that we, that we know as as um, fundamentally cute, right? As opposed to the Terminator, scary person looking type robot. So they've really become a staple within this community, which is about 50 miles um, outside of, of Europe, which I know I'm not supposed to use, you know, miles when it comes to talking about the UK, but I can't do the kilometers. So sorry about that. Um, but basically, this case study, there's a battery-powered apt summoned equipped with sensors to detect pedestrians and armed with a speaker to be polite. So, for example, this allows the remote human operator to observe pedestrians that might be walking into the street that you might cut off and say, I'm sorry, or if, if the um, pedestrian moves you out of the way of traffic, the robot, which they become kind of um, stakeholders within in this town, that happens often, the robot will thank them. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, also, within this case study, they talk about how the robots have actually kind of infiltrated the, the community by um, delivering food at local restaurants. Uh, and playing with kids while they're at the playground, those types of things. Um, so this showcases the opportunity for technology to become more within the, the comfortability sphere of the actual user or community that they're working within, as opposed to kind of more of, of that media-based stereotype of, um, of being kind of a scary device. Uh, so I wanted to kind of get your take on that when it comes to actual design of a technology, whether it's structural design or the actual de device design. Is that really a key stakeholder to creating effective user adoption? As far as as far as just making it more cute or humanized is, is what, kind of what it sounds like you're doing. Or yeah, and it's, it's about not that. even so much cute. If we look on the software side, it's it's more on a, of a comfortable lens. Um, you know, it's more something that might be familiar or birth less fear in that conversation. Uh, so they kind of took a, a psychology-based approach to a technology device design. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. It makes it much more humanizing. And, and I would suspect, uh, as you were talking about it, it almost sounds less threatening. So it's less, uh, you know, you become less scared, I would think, of of AI or of robots or AI, AI sort of in my mind or going through my mind as we talk about the robots here too. But it becomes less of a, a threat, I would think, in that way. Absolutely. They, um, they actually deliver fish and chips for the family too, if you'd like some, some of that. So it just, it sounds like a, a, a starship is a place that we need to, to visit when it comes to their technologies within, um, this European town that they've, they've used as, as kind of a pilot program. So pretty interesting.
have you heard or have they did the article or your research show just how people are responding? Like, is it having a positive effect or in that sort of thing? So as far as this case study, they really have a, a very personal relationship that the study is actually called, are people falling in love with robots? And I wasn't prepared to go that far because I felt like that was a little weird. Um, right. But basically, it's they've become really an affinity-based device in their community through engaging with their um, not only efficiencies in delivery services, right, but also in their ability to entertain and just be kind of beloved within this over overall type of community. It reminds me of if you're a Star Wars nerd like me, like R2-D2, right? R2-D2 was never really threatening, but he was beloved. You know, there was a scene where you thought he might not make it. And, and I'm not ashamed to say I cried real tears, real human tears when that happened. So, <laughs> Right. That actually is a good point. I, I always forget about Star Wars and the, the humanized robots and how that's so much less threatening than the Terminator robots, especially the first Terminator. So yeah, that's a good, good point. Absolutely. Absolutely. So speaking of terrifying, we, we have to go into the, you know, the zombie pig tech. And so um, to make this much less shock and awe, basically what happened at Yale University, which is a, a university here within the United States, it's called an Ivy League school, which is something, you know, is one of our most pristine universities here. Uh, they, the, um, this new technology that specializes in um, cell protective fluid to organs and tissues and um, restores blood circulation after the deaths of these quote unquote test pigs. So basically what they were able to do is even hours after their death, they were able to achieve other vital transplants when it comes to organs and restore blood flow and brain activity in um, in these already deceased animals. And the reason that this is important, obviously, is they call it OrganX um, technology. Could eventually have several other potential applications or use cases. Um, for instance, extending the life of organ transplants, which a lot of times, if you've ever been involved in that, it is a really tight time window uh, and transportation can be very challenging. Um, and then also it can help create uh, treatments for tissue damage, heart attacks, strokes, those types of, of different things. So not real zombie prigs running the, you know, the campus of Yale, but um, it truly is an, an opportunity to see how healthcare technologies can extend the overall lifespan or um, enhance the quality of life of human beings. Yeah, and it, yeah, and re, re as sick as it may sound, sort of reusing or recycling uh, organs and things like that. I, I suppose there could be some societal and or health benefits to that as well. As, as creepy as it sounds, as as I'm saying it out loud, it doesn't sound that good. But there is part of me that thinks that, that could be uh, just an interesting evolution for sure. Yes, definitely. And then always, you know, the ethical piece of that, it, it always has to go into um, how will that look as far as an, an actual mainstream um, implementation within each culture. But, you know, it really brings like taxidermy of pets to a new level. So who knows? You know, we could have a 200-year-old cat running around um, for a little while, but um, it's definitely obviously a, a huge 
um, opportunity and, and leads us into kind of that metasphere use case of being able to train for these specific types of, of new technologies within a virtual or augmented reality. Oh, within metaverse? You yeah. Mean the, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, actually, that, that's a good point. It's almost like uh, when I was gr when I was a uh, Growing up, when I was a teenager, first became a teenager, I really got into Stephen King books. So, Pet yeah. Cemetery was one of the Ooh. one of my favorite books growing up, and uh, it sort of reminds me of Pet Cemetery meets the uh, metaverse. So, inter interesting combo for sure. Yeah, we should have done this like around Halloween, this episode or something like that. <laughs> totally, yeah. Maybe we should um, maybe we should not table it, but revisit this topic yeah. around yeah. Halloween. That's great we will, idea. We will absolutely do that. We'll we'll do that. Um, so moving into more of the healthcare transformation, as we know, this industry has been ripe with transitioning from um, technologies. But one thing that we haven't really talked about is the interoperability of the healthcare overall ecosystem. So to give you an outline, um, we have the payers. So basically the, the people that are actually paying, whether that's an insurance company or the patient, the provider and then the financial institutions that either fund that upfront or take the payments. And historically, these have never worked well together as far as any synergy. So new technologies such as blockchain, for example, or cryptocurrency, have given a significant opportunity for those core representations and um, administrative tasks that occur throughout many touch points in that system to actually be utilized in, in more of a collaborative nature as opposed to competing for either the platform in which the customer goes through or which the provider provides the notes in and then goes to the insurance company. So these non-value-add activities which could essentially streamline and make the processes easier for everyone is an argument being made in the industry that it's time to really create that interoperability together and make sure that it is more of a cohesive system, which reminded me kind of of what we talked about a few weeks back about the warehouse sharing, when you might share the warehouse space of a competitor just for synergies and, and best case scenarios for your customers. So I wanted to see if you felt like that eliminating those inefficiencies in any sort of industry by working different bureaucracies together that might not always work together well might be something of a trend that we see moving into more of an integrated approach to technology. Yeah, I think it's an interesting comment. I, I wouldn't have thought of that on my own as, a, as an emerging trend or as a high priority emerging trend, but I think it could be. Um, and one, one of the things that comes to mind is when you think about all the redundant activities that organizations do, especially around lower value administrative overhead types of functions, you know, every organization or most organizations out there are doing that on their own. They're sort of recreating the wheel. So if you could take those functions that maybe aren't your secret sauce or they're not your uh, big differentiating competitive, competitive differentiator, those might be good candidates to say share the cost or to at least share some best practices and lessons learned so that each of you, if your competitors could focus on your, your real competitive differentiators. And um, it's sort of like the same, the same mindset or the same approach or philosophy we recommend to our clients when they're implementing new technology. You, you have certain business processes where you might leverage those best practices or 
sort of the off the shelf capabilities of the software for certain parts of your business, but there might be other parts of your business that are so different intentionally and by design that you need to change the software to fit the business. So it's sort of like that same mentality of how could you, how can we find ways? And I think a lot of organizations are constantly struggling with this is how do we find ways to, to not have to recreate the wheel in these lower value parts of our business. And that certainly could be one way to do it the way you're, you're describing here. Absolutely. And, you know, just the benefit of a lot of these, these different entities within the industries that have always kind of butt heads, whether you're looking at, you know, the DMV with car insurance or health insurance and providers and those types of things that really have been a burden on the customer. But you think about it from an efficiency standpoint and thought, you know, maybe if everyone kind of stepped back and looked at it from, you know, a thousand foot view, there is efficiencies in the operational piece that create an opportunity to achieve everyone's objectives faster and easier, right? Um, so I think that's kind of what uh, a lot of times, especially at an industry that is in such a transitional phase like healthcare, is really discovering and transforming about their entire um, foundation right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree. And the your comment about the software customization piece kind of brings me to my my next hot topic or overall the concept of of digital lifecycle management. So one of the research reports I was reading about had a very interesting argument that in order for businesses to stay competitive in this ever-changing landscape and marketplace they need to focus on software engineering as their main core competency and digital lifecycle management as opposed to focusing on system to system because they need to have a core capability and evolve through integration to interact with each other. And the only way to do that is to create this central activity, not only on the technology side, but also on the, the operating model processes and skill set side in creating a new workforce. I think this is a really interesting argument and I wanted to get your take on it. Yeah, I I think it is. And I and again it's a it's sort of a an emerging trend that, that it's not top of mind for, for me right now, or it's not one that I, that I think about often, but I think it's a really interesting point because when you think of, uh, I, I guess if we back up, it's, it's really changing the mindset of organizations that are historically product focused and they they look at sort of their, their end product for a, for a engineering or a make to order or a manufacturing company that actually makes something physical, you know, they, they treat those products pretty highly. They value that whole life cycle management, the, you know, the optimizing of the product design, all that stuff and their investments in the product. And so I guess it, it sort of raises an even bigger picture question, which is, should we, we, should we be rethinking our digital, digital technologies and investments as an actual asset that we manage and optimize over time? And I think for a lot of organizations, they view it as a necessary evil or sort of a ongoing operating expense, especially with the, the advent of the cloud, where we've sort of shifted digital technologies or a lot of the digital technologies, we've shifted it off the balance sheet onto our, you know, off the asset line items in the balance sheet to more of an operating expense. So that's, um, that trend is inconsistent with what you're saying, which I think what you're saying makes more sense though. Um, whereas we, we should view these digital technologies as assets, as things that we intentionally manage and more importantly, the things that we take ownership of. You know, too often we outsource, we have this outsource mentality of let's just outsource to the cloud providers, 
Um, cloud providers want you to outsource because they make more money. So everyone's happy on the surface, but those companies that are really good at the whole managing their digital technologies and using technology to their advantage, they're not outsourcing everything. They're not just deferring to their, their software. They're actually managing their technologies more aggressively, more actively, proactively than their competitors. So I, I think it makes total sense. Absolutely. And, and I think another thing to pull, kind of pull out of the thesis of your statement is that ownership is understanding that the evolution into different softwares that might have a really intuitive user face or a low code to no code option, it still involves a core IT need within the organization. And I think a lot of times it may lean out or change and evolve your IT team, but there is a need for being able to respond to something in the marketplace and leveraging the technology within your organization to be able to do so. Um, so having that, that clear strategy internally is so important to an effective digital strategy. Yeah, I, yeah, I totally agree. Well, that brings me to kind of my, my last hot topic that is more ERP focused when it looks at the evolution of ERP systems. Um, we recently put out our 2023 digital transformation report, which is available for download in the description wherever you're watching or listening to this podcast. Also available on our thought leadership guides and reports on our website. But I thought it was very interesting, um, this report I found that um, talked about some statistics from eMarketer um, that expects another 15% increase, specifically in the U.S. of retail e-commerce sales within the latter half of 2022, which calls for a need for warehouse management systems and functionalities within ERP systems. And we've seen big giants in the ERP space like Oracle, who's recently um, signed on its customers for its cloud-based warehouse management, um, and then also adapted its cloud-based transportation management platform, which is essentially what they've typically utilized for warehouse management. Um, and then it's almost exclusively been the warehouse management opportunity or add-on um, within how they sell their software now. So it just, again, kind of showcases not on, only on the supply chain side, but the evolution of the overall buying behavior of consumers and needing to have, if you, especially if you have a physical product, right, that warehouse management, inventory operations, um, seamless approach to stay competitive within, you know, that one to two day shipping window. So just wanted to get, you know, your industry expertise feedback on if that's something you've been seeing in the marketplace or you think we'll continue to see. Uh, yes and yes, I, we are seeing that in the in the marketplace with our clients, and I do absolutely think that's going to continue for for reasons even even bigger or more expansive than what you're suggesting here, which is the the growth of e the continued growth of e commerce. Which I totally get that, I agree with that, but I think even more fundamental than that is the fact that organizations throughout the world are still struggling with their supply chains. They're just struggling to get the right products at the right place to the right customers at the right time. And a lot of this is evidenced just recently in the last few months, you've seen big retailers like uh, Target and Walmart, for example, two of the biggest retailers in the U.S. are struggling with inventory issues. They've had big write-offs that they've had to write off their inventory because it's just outdated. It's out of season. It's not selling. 
Um, they couldn't match demand at the right time. And, and a lot of this goes back to COVID, you know, back to the lockdowns and people having to stockpile inventory, kind of going back to that old way of thinking of, you know, we've got to get ahead. We've got to order way in advance now because of the supply chain is so broken and so delayed versus where we were right before the pandemic was much more of a real time, just in time sort of an inventory management. So the fact that organizations are really struggling with this reality of the supply chain issues still um, dysfunctioning throughout the world, and in some cases, having outdated technology is just further perpetuating the problem. So I think that organizations to fix their supply chain, or at least mitigate the risk of these supply chain issues are going to continue to gravitate toward technologies like warehouse management and other supply chain based technologies as well to try and further automate, streamline, and just get better visibility and uh, planning into the supply chain. And what are your thoughts of kind of that race between core ERP add-on applications and the best of breed supply chain management systems? Because my my thought on it is is kind of you have a best of breed system that might be the latest and greatest and, and most efficient, but if it doesn't speak the language of the rest of your technical organization, there's no way it can add value. So it's, it's kind of like one's racing to be a huge new innovation, but without the other, it really can't be as innovated as possible. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. I think um, it's almost like, uh, I feel like it's a debate that's never going to get, get resolved. It's a lot like arguing over you know, who's the best sports team or which religion is the best. I just feel like it's just one of those things you're just not going to get agreement on. And, and I can certainly make arguments across the board for different, different perspectives on it. But I think the key here is to, um, you know, I think the key universal truth here is that a warehouse management is very important and anything to do with supply chain right now is very important to organizations. I think the key becomes, you know, how important is that and just finding the best supply chain or warehouse management solution how important is that versus potentially having a single system that ties together the operations more seamlessly, but perhaps potentially waters down that supply chain and warehouse management type of focus. Um, and the same could be said for finance or uh, sales, sales management, customer service, CRM, human capital management, and HR, business intelligence. You look at all these different parts of a business and there's always going to be this tension between single ERP system that does everything, but doesn't do everything really well versus point solutions that specialize in certain areas and do it better and deeper than, than ERP systems. So there's pros and cons to each. Um, I think today, what I will say is that today with integration tools and more of a focus on common platforms, um, that integrating multiple systems is a lot less of a bad word or a lot less of a frowned upon sort of a thing than it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, it just didn't, you know, you get all these silos and data issues and uh, integration issues, all that kind of stuff. You could still run into that and you still do see that today, but with modern technologies, it's a lot easier to integrate. Um, and there's also organizations that are, or software solutions that are focused more on building a platform for a bunch of different third-party applications to bolt onto or be part of. So for example, like Salesforce has their force.com platform where yes, you get Salesforce, the CRM solution as sort of your, your core technology, but there's all these third-party developers that have created add-ons or variations of Salesforce to meet different needs. So you've got these sort of third hybrid option, which is a focus on a platform like a force.com, which is Salesforce's uh, uh, force platform. 
Um, and others have it too, like Palantir is a company that, that creates like interoperable um, integration of systems. You have ServiceNow, which is sort of like that. Um, there's an organization called Stopwatch that we've had on the show before. We've had the CEO on the show before where they create sort of an integrated way of viewing data across systems you may already have in place. So anyway, long story short, there's a lot of technology out there that's enabling um, enabling alternatives to big ERP systems. Absolutely. That's a really good point, you know, and, and having kind of that third bucket of options um, and to your universal truth, it's great to know that you have options and really understanding where your organization is at and what it needs is going to be key to picking any of those those options out there in the marketplace, which is what kind of you and and Mitch and, and Nate and Cam go into in our um, conversation about organiza- organizational change management, a case study from one of our bigger clients. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to bring on the, the panel here in just a moment to talk about this change management case study. And we get a little bit into the technology and we'll get into the technology component of, um, I, I do want to ask them the question around how you, how you balance change in the context of also potentially leveraging best practices or off the shelf capabilities. There's an inherent conflict there, just like there's an inherent conflict between single ERP versus multiple systems. It's always a trade-off and finding that perfect answer is very difficult, if not impossible. So I, I do want to talk about that among other things with this panel. But we're going to have um, Nate, Mitch, and Cameron from the third stage consulting team, who's part of a particular project team that is consulting to a billion dollar chemical manufacturing company. And our focus on this project is organizational change management. So they're, they're, the client is going through a big tier one implementation, which the panel will talk about in more detail. And our role on the project is to help them manage the overall changes, the organizational changes to make sure that the project is more successful. So we're going to have uh, Nate, Cameron, and Mitch on the show here in just a moment to talk about this change management case study and an active digital transformation. But before we have them on, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event it's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, 
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 81. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and I'm excited to have our next set of guests on the show. Uh, it's a panel discussion we're going to have. It's actually a, a consulting project team here at Third Stage that is consulting to a $1 billion chemical manufacturing client. They're going through a big tier one ERP implementation and implementing enterprise technology, and we are helping them with the change management piece in particular. And so what I wanted to do is I thought it'd be really interesting to have this team on the call, partially because it's a larger multinational transformation, but also because it's a transformation that's in progress. They're sort of in the trenches and in the thick of it right now going through these changes or through this transformation. So we've had guests on here before, which are great. You know, you look back on a project that's already completed, you talk about the good, the bad, the ugly, the lessons learned, and it's great, but there's something different about talking to people right in the middle of a project. Sort of what are the things you're dealing with right this minute? What are some of the challenges there? And that's exactly what we want to uh, cover here today. So with all that being said, uh, Nate, Mitch, and Cam, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Eric. Um, I'm Nate hey. Storer, and I'm a, a practice lead here at, at Third Stage Consulting and have been spent most of my career in um, IT and specifically around digital transformation and change management and um, work on a, a lot of our change management clients here at Third Stage. Great. Well, thanks for being here. And then uh, Cameron Carpenter, thank you for being here as well. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, Cameron Carpenter. I'm a consultant at Third Stage Consulting Group. Uh, I have a unique background. I have a more operational uh, experience in the Air National Guard with over 12 years in maintenance, repair, and overhaul side. I uh, bring that unique experience and my entrepreneurial experiences to Third Stage uh, driving digital transformation efforts. There's software selections, change management initiatives, uh, you name it. Uh, I'm a delivery consultant. I, I'm hitting the ground running on these projects. So as you can see, I'm I'm the guy in the deep, deep, deep in the weeds, as you will, uh, day to day and uh, drive your projects to success. So quick, quick, but enough about me. Great. Well, thanks for being here, Cameron. And then last but not least, Mitch Otteson. Thank you for joining today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so Mitch Otteson, I'm manager of strategy and transformation here at Third Stage. Uh, my background really has I've been in IT and, and where I've spent the most of my career has been uh, walking the line between business and technology and figuring out how technology can be an enabler for business. And uh, something I'm passionate about and look forward to talking about it today. Great. Well, great to have you all. Thanks for being here. And, and uh, speaking of topics we're passionate about, I think we can all agree that we're passionate about change management. So we wanted to uh, take this case study, which is interesting in a lot of ways, because a lot of times on this show and on this podcast, we'll sort of do case studies after the fact, after the project's completed, you look back and reflect on what went well, what didn't go well, what were some of the lessons learned. But this one's a little bit different because we're right in the midst of the transformation right now. So it's a little bit more of a in the trenches sort of a, a feel. And that's really what I wanted to get after here today. And today's discussion is sort of the, the good, the bad, the ugly of what's happening right now, you know, as you guys are going through this transformation with our client. So I guess just to start out, and we can't, you know, obviously, hopefully the audience understands we can't share the client name or any sort of confidential information, but we can share a bit about the organization, some of the challenges and that sort of thing without mentioning them by name or without giving away who who the organization is. But without giving away who the organization is, Nate, um, tell us a little bit about the clients, what it is they do, what industry they're in, that sort of thing as well as the scope of their, their digital transformation, just to start us off. And then we'll, we'll kind of get into some of the change management specific questions. 
Great. Yeah, thanks. Um, our, our client is a, a billion dollar plus uh, multinational chemical manufacturing organization. And they called us in in the middle of a um, the implementation of a tier one ERP platform. They um, <clears throat> have had uh, several technology initiatives that have been very successful, some that have been very challenging. Uh, we were called in specifically uh, for our change management expertise and to help guide them through uh, the, the change management initiative and to really put in place a structured change management program and initiative to help them not only with this technology uh, implementation, but down the road, post implementation, go live and post go live support. Okay, great. That's a good, a good overview. And um, so I guess just to start, um, again, coming at this from a change management and a, and a human side of change perspective, how big of an impact or change is this transformation in general having on the organization? And, and Cameron, let's start with you. I know you guys all have opinions on all these topics, but we'll, we'll start with you, Cameron. Uh, well, it's a, I'd say that this organization is experiencing pretty large impact um, globally. It's, uh, uh, it's a large solution. It's moving from an on-prem to cloud-based, there's a lot of difference in the way the system is structured and, and handles their current processes. So it's just very complex. There's a lot of moving pieces. And like, like I said, global meaning you're, you're working with different countries with different uh, compliance and, and regulatory requirements and needs, potentially different processes. And to work and manage a project of that size uh, truly takes a strong governance structure from a project perspective in managing it. So it's 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 a significant change to this organization. And is that the sort of just out of curiosity, is that the that sort of project governance or the general governance that you're talking about? Is that something that's new to this organization or is that something they already had the competency and now they're just sort of building on that to to make the transformation more successful? I'd say it's a little of both. It's it seems that they set up the governance structures typically for their projects, but I think they've made a, a a different focus on this one with having the change management lens. Um, uh, it, they've kind of usually been a technical driven company uh, and that kind of ties into the culture, right? It's, it's where they've been. And so when Nate alluded to some of the project successes they've had and some of the, the uh, we won't call them letdowns because they were successful, but as far as they completed them, but they were IT driven and they didn't have a business focus. So I think that's the key with the new governance structure along with the fact that They've taken those past experiences and if, if realized the benefit of change management or change leadership, which I'm sure we'll get into a little more. Uh, and that's now a new component to this where we're working with both the technical and the business side. Got it. Okay. That, that makes total sense. So, so Nate and Mitch, anything you'd add to the mix as far as how big of a change or impact this has been on the organization? The one thing that I would add in there is, you know, coming from an environment where they have their legacy system that was completely customized to meet their needs to the out of the box type of model, um, they're running into significant challenges in trying to fit what they've been doing for the last you know, 10, 12, 20 years into what they're doing today with an out of the box solution. So um, lots of processes that we need to be reviewing, evaluating, understanding what you're doing today and what you're trying to accomplish tomorrow. 
And right. you know, the one thing, the one thing I'll add and Cam hit on it a little bit, but I'll elaborate on it. And Eric, I think you can, you could um, attest to this as well. We're, we're seeing so many folks and so many organizations that are interested in change management, change leadership initiatives, because traditionally IT projects, uh, platform imp implementations, any digital transformation has been driven and almost exclusively performed by the IT department. And, and there's our client has really seen some of the pitfalls and some of the challenges that have come out of that in the past. And this is really a chance for them to get the organization involved. And we're going to hit on this later down um, in, our, in our discussion, I'm sure. But it's it's really trying to get people to say, you know, this is this is something we need your input and we need you to be involved. And you can't just say lift and shift and we'll train you how to use this platform. You need to be involved in setting this up and you need to be involved in the change from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great point. So, so to address some of these challenges that you guys have mentioned, as far as the impact or the change to the organization, what you know, what if we just sort of back up or start at the highest level here and, and work our way down into the details? You know, what what's the general change strategy in particular for this for this digital transformation? You know, what what sort of approach are we taking, or how did we maybe how did we get started? You know, that might be a good place to start. What what are your thoughts on that, Mitch? Yeah, so really we got started and our whole goal when we first engaged with the client was to just understand where they're at. And our change management strategy has really been to meet the client where they're at and to help to identify any any pitfalls that we're seeing on where they're going. Um, and to make the, the deliverables that we're putting in front of them relevant. Um, you know, we, we talked with some of their experience. I mean, they're, they're a large company. They've worked with, you know, big four and basically any consultancy out there. And what's been different about us and our strategy has been, we're not shoving a methodology down their throat. We are really trying to understand them, navigate their people. We're trying to navigate their structures um, and we're trying to meet them where they are and, and to just help them along the way. Yeah, great point. I think a lot of, a lot of organizations and project teams forget that or just intentionally uh, ignore where they're at you know they they sort of focus on let's get to the future state we know we're going to change our culture we know we're going to change our way of doing business which is partially true but you have to understand where you're starting from in order to to get there so that's a really good good observation or point um how about uh camera or nate anything to add in terms of the general you know sort of the general change strategy in addition to meeting the client where they are today and, and helping them start to migrate to where they're headed Nate, want to go first? Yeah, you know, and I'll, I'll just say that that I think, um, you know, I think to elaborate with what Mitch said is is change management. It, you you have a, a structure to every project, and and I always go back to the difference with when you go to a platform implementation. It's a very set standard. You do this, you do this, you do this. It's very linear. The the steps are really well known. Change management's a little bit different. So you. You come in with a structure, you know where you are, you know what steps you need to take, and you know the the, the programs that you need to implement. But it, it's, it's a constantly changing and it's constantly shifting to the needs of the client and to the strengths and to the really the comfort level of the client. So while we come into a project like the one we're on now, we, we know 
like I would say, I'd use the analogy of building a house. We know the steps you need to take to build a house, but you're gonna, going to be working with the client throughout the project to adjust the intricacies of what you're doing to meet what their needs are. So it's not just a one size fits all solution. Yeah, maybe, you know, maybe one of you could talk just real quickly about, um, you know, how we go about ascertaining some of these strengths and weaknesses of a, of a current situation and helping to find the change strategy in, in the form of that organizational readiness assessment. Could one of you maybe just sort of uh, elaborate on that step in our process a little bit? You know, how do, how do we, how do we get that foundation or that, um, that clear strategy and plan based on that spirit of meeting the client where they are today, but also understanding where they're headed in the future. Could one of you maybe unpack that or just describe at a high level what that organizational readiness assessment is and, and how that fits into what you're, you're talking about here? Yeah, I'd be happy to take that one. There's things that we do in, in an assessment like this is to try and um, bucket observations into themes. Um, and by taking these themes and applying uh, a broad strategy to a theme, we're able to you know, take a, a pretty broad abstract topic and turn it in. Um, when we're talking with our client, we often try to identify things such as resistance, but there's multiple types of resistance. There's you know intentional and unintentional. And you tackle those things differently based on whether or not um, someone is resisting the change because they just don't like the product at all they weren't included or maybe it's unintentional being a detractor and we need to help to guide them along and, and it's a change in approach based on you know where each one of those changes falls into those buckets of themes yeah yeah and and generally we you know we we get to those themes or we conclude those those themes based on sort of a two-prong change readiness assessment where we go in and we do online anonymous surveys, but we also do qualitative focus groups. And then during that uh, data gathering, quantitative and qualitative data gathering, we use that input to then analyze to understand what are the nuances of this particular organization compared to others that we work with and what are the pitfalls that this organization is going to face and ultimately what is the most effective change strategy and plan that we can tailor for this particular situation. So I think that you know, that upfront assessment piece really gets to the heart of what you guys are saying, which is so important, which is to sort of frame this or to create a strategy and plan that is not one size fits all, but is more specific to a client's particular situation. We're having a great panel discussion here about change management and a case study related to that here with Nate, Mitch, and Cam. We've got more questions for the group when we come back, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 81. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, as well as all of the audio podcast platforms. And we are here in the middle of a conversation with our panel discussion of Nate, Cameron, and Mitch talking about a change management project with a large chemical manufacturer. Here's a, here's a question actually from the audience um, that I wanted to, to get to, which is uh, sort of builds on what we were just talking about, how you, you, know, you tailor some of these change strategies and solutions for a, a specific client situation. Um, but it also gets into another sort of subtopic or, or um, thread within that discussion of you know, the pitfalls of initial implementation being IT-driven versus business-driven. Um, and this is from Wilson over on YouTube who asked the question here. Um, and it's, and I suppose it's not really a question. It, 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 I'm not sure if it's meant to be a question, but maybe I'll turn it into a question if, if it's not. Um, but what are some of those um, IT-driven pitfalls versus business-driven pitfalls that you guys have seen, at least with this particular um, situation? Are, and, and actually, I'm going to come back to another question that related to this as it relates to sort of standard software functionality versus the way the business wants to operate. I'm going to come back to that as well, but what are, you know, what are some of the pitfalls of this, of an implementation like this being IT driven versus business driven? Is that, is this a challenge that we've seen with this client or, or what are your thoughts here? Uh, why don't we start with you, Cam? Yeah. So from what I see with this client, um, because they have been strong in IT focus in their past projects, they're focused more on the business side now. So what, what's been positive, might not be quote unquote a pitfall, right? Is that there's business focus, but still with consulting and the technical side. So there, you might get a technical perspective of, yeah, there, there's going to be a process change and you're going to need to train some people on this. It's, it's not a big deal. But then when you switch gears and look at it from a business perspective, there's the pitfall is they don't see it from a cultural perspective organizationally and what it really means truly to the end users. So, so to me, for this specific case study, uh, it's the fact that we're, we're fortunate to have the business lens to tie back to what we might not get from the technical folks. There, there, they just, there's some gaps, and, and that's the fluffy stuff, right, that we, we tend to talk about that people don't, like, they don't want to talk about and work with for organizations, but it's true, and it, it definitely is impactful. Yeah, makes total sense. How about you, Nate? Anything you'd, you'd add to that? Well, I, yeah, I would just say that ultimately uh, the, the platform and the technology is in place to solve a business solution or solve a business problem or provide a solution to the business. So I think it's it's really important. And I think the, the pitfall when you have either the business driving it too much or IT driving the, the process too much is that you, you lose that collaboration. IT is really good at knowing what the system can do, what the the capabilities, what the functionality is, how you configure the system. The business is really good at knowing what they need to do and what they need from the technology to help them do their job. So again, if, if either way, if you have one side that's too heavy on the teeter-totter IT or business, you're, you're going to get out of whack. So it's, it's really making sure that collaboration's there so that the business can provide what their needs are, IT can provide what the solution is. Those come together and they really give you the ultimate best solution. Hmm. What about, um, Mitch, maybe I'll start with you on this question. Um, what about this whole concept of, um, you know, the standard functionality of the software 
you know, every system, whether it's this one that this client is, is implementing or any other ERP system out there um, or any sort of enterprise technology, you have sort of your standard workflows or a standard way the software works. And then you have the way the organization works today. And then you have sort of the future state of how you're going to, how that organization is going to work using that new technology in the future. How, maybe explain to us or help us understand how, how has this dynamic worked with this particular client? What have some of the challenges been in terms of just reconciling the way software works versus way organization works today versus way organization wants to work in the future? How, you know, maybe help us unpack that a little bit if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this client has been, you know, and has an extra dimension to it in the fact that they're working with their software provider on uh, co-innovation. So they're meeting and creating a product that is specific for um, the chemical manufacturing uh, space. And so there's an additional layer to that where with you know a lot of our clients, traditionally, we look at what does the software do today? Um, how does that fit your business processes and needs? Where are their gaps? And can that gap be solved for with an additional um, workflow? Um, that's something that's an out of the box tool within the software to um, accomplish things that maybe aren't right out of the box, but it's not a customization. You aren't changing the underlying code. Um, you're just changing some of the workflows within it using the tools provided. Um, and then from there, you decide, does this need a customization or do we need to modify our business processes to meet? Um, what, um, the additional complexity here is that a lot of the software that comes out of the box inherently doesn't meet chemical manufacturing where it's at. That's the, the purpose of co-innovation is to try and uh, bridge those gaps. So it's trying to understand, is this uh, a change that the client needs to make? Is it a change they need to Is the vendor willing and able to um, make those changes and do it in a way that satisfies the needs of the business. So um, this one has been kind of like navigating a minefield and, and trying to you know just understand where where is it right to spend resources, where should the processes change, and where should we ask for um, code to support the processes. And it, it really goes to understanding you know what's core to what we do, what is our differentiators, what are our um, our secret sauce, for lack of a better term, and how can we support the things that make our business unique and successful? So how, um, Nate, I'll ask you this, how, how successful or, or how open to what Mitch just described, how open has this particular client been to that approach or, or how has that played out in actuality? I mean, what Mitch just said makes total sense. I completely agree. But then there's the reality of like, you know, it's usually a little bit messier. <laughs> it's a little bit messier than that. But how has it been with this particular client? Is that are they finding that navigating that balance of, you know, leveraging workflows out of the system versus changing things of the system that they need to change? Have, are they how are they navigating that? How would you describe the, the way they're going about that? Well, I, I think and, th and this is interesting. And we just had this discussion yesterday on one of our um, uh, status update calls. But I think as the as the clients getting more and more familiar with the process and as they're starting to see some benefits and some buy-in for lack of a better phrase they're they're starting to get they're starting to buy into the process so i think um you know changes change i think is uh while while change is a, a subject is is everywhere in our life i think change management to an organization is fairly foreign so i think our where we're seeing a lot of the success with this client and where we've seen it with a lot of our clients is the fact that as you start to take those baby steps and you start to include them and you start to 
talk about the the cross-functional changes and the the organizational changes they'll be seeing and uh, and they'll be encountering over the the next six months uh year year plus they're they're starting to, to buy into it and they're starting to get open to it so there's that gray area and it's that gray area of of literally to the point where sometimes you'll start off and they say why are we even doing this let's just implement the software let's just use the functionality that's there let's not worry about it to hey i have buy-in on this i make a difference you're listening to what my business needs are to where they really become an integral part of this configuration and this implementation so it, it's not a it, it's definitely one and i don't think this is unique to our client today where it, the, the more and more they start to see results and the more and more they start to become involved the more they open up and it, it, it's really it's really a cool thing to see throughout the process is, is it really starts to to build momentum and it's going to be building more and more momentum as we go forward yeah i know we we see with a lot of our clients this refrain from executives who say you know we, we don't want to customize the software at all you know let's do zero customization let's just deploy the software as it was built out of the box and i guess the good news in that is that it's because executives and organizations in general are starting to realize and they've realized over recent years and decades that customization oftentimes can lead to to failure and it leads to a lot of risk and cost overruns and all that stuff so that's the good news at least it's coming from a good place but the reality is that you can't just draw a line in the sand and say we are not customizing the software we're just using it out of the box especially if it's a enterprise-wide technology like a, a big tier one erp system there's just no way those systems can be everything to everyone so i think that that challenge is is difficult for a lot of organizations because i think they have a in their minds it's sort of like one or the other we're either going to customize or we're not when in the reality is that you've got to find the right balance for you and you might come up with different answers and different conclusions based on different parts of your business and the secret sauce of your business like you said mitch and all that good stuff so those are really good points um what about this question here from from Kyler, who is our podcast host here, uh, listening and joining in in the background here? Um, how do you address that change trauma in these types of large global organizations? If something went poorly in the past, I assume employees might be more hesitant to embrace new processes or technologies? Question mark. Um, I see you guys all nodding here, so this should be an interesting uh, interesting response for this particular client. Is this something that resonates with this client? Um, what are your thoughts, Cameron? Is it is it something that Sounds familiar. Um, well, yes. And part of that is the fact that most of their past projects have obviously been IT driven. So when we when we are discussing and talking, it's it's really trying to take them along the journey to, to coach and train them on the change process and what it means and to create that feedback loop so that when, when we're hearing from the business and from those key folks that have experienced change trauma in the past, right, that it's getting to the proper folks within the governance structure of the project and escalated in the appropriate manner so that their voices are being heard. So I think that's the key, right? The business is a part of this and there is a structure in place to communicate and work through the changes and escalate them as necessary. So um, definitely, definitely you see it here and the, the positive is, is because the business is involved and they're passionate, they're going to speak up because it impacts them and it impacts their, their, their people. So that's, that's, it might be quote unquote drama, but, but they're involved and they're a part of it. So that's, I think that's key. Right. Yeah. It makes, makes total sense. And actually I want to build on that with a follow-up question for you, Mitch, and this is actually coming back to something that you mentioned sort of in passing, but I think it was a really good point. And, and, uh, 
Zishan on LinkedIn has a question here of how would you elaborate on, let's talk about intentional and unintentional resistance. He's just asking about intentional resistance, but let's talk about the difference between the two. And maybe if you could, maybe just give an example of, you know, of what we've seen, especially an example of unintentional resistance, because I think that's the one that creeps up on you and, and surprises you in a lot of, in a lot of changes. Yeah. But how would you describe that difference to start? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, intentional resistance, I, I view it as someone who just is not bought into the change. They don't understand the need for the change. They've been doing this process this way for years and they're comfortable with it. Um, the un and, and, and with the intentional resistance, it's very clear and, and very easy to pick up on, hey, this person is really not, not interested in this. They're not bought in. Um, they could either be vocal about it or they can be very shut off about it, um, but it's usually pretty clear. Um, the unintentional resistance is really the one that, that creeps in on you. Um, and it's, it's more, I would describe it as discomfort. And you, you oftentimes pick up on it based on the, the questions that, that people are asking. Um, you know, when they're, when they're describing a way that um, a process has been run for such a long time and how they just can't see how um, it could ever run. But they're doing it in a way that is supportive and, and comes off as collaborating. Um, and you, you see that they're really just not bought into what it is that, that we're doing. It's the same, you know, you know, consequence where the buy-in isn't there and it's just we need to bridge that gap a little bit more. Um, but it's often a lot more. And so that one's a lot harder to pick up on and to, to do something about and often more difficult to address because it's often the people that um, seem pretty positive about the project, seem pretty positive about um, what's going on. Um, they're just not bought into the change and, and how it's going to impact them. And oftentimes it comes from a, a place of uh, not knowing what the future holds, not knowing how my job is going to change based on this. Um, and so what we try and do to address the unintentional resistance um, is to give a clear picture or as clear as we can on what's changing, why it's changing. Um, the why is huge. Um, but then also change, uh, sharing a vision for the future. Um, you know, your manual process that you've been doing this way and takes up 20 hours of your week you can spend time working on other cool things that you haven't had the time to do that you know um, are there. So there's there's a, you know efficiencies that can be gained and, and oftentimes people know that there's cool work that they can be doing, they just don't have time to do it. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a great point. And, and you hit a, another really good point, which is the unintentional resistance is way harder to detect. And in fact, I'd go even one step further and say it's, it's almost misleading because it's it's unintentional. And so on the surface, the people or the the work groups are on board. They're saying they're on board, and 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 who knows? Maybe they really are on board with the idea of change. But then once you start getting into the details of what the change means and how it's going to affect them and how it's going to really rock their world, then then you start to get a, you get the pushback. Not because it's coming from a bad place, but because there's fear, there's uncertainty, there's confusion, whatever it is. So that that unintentional resistance is a lot more difficult to to uh, encounter for sure. Um, you know, Cameron, I'll ask you this question. I don't know if, you know, I, part of me thinks this may not be a fair question, but I have to ask it anyway to see if you have a good answer. But do you, do you have, um, do you have any examples from this particular client of either work groups or individuals that have demonstrated maybe that unintentional resistance where maybe the, on the surface they're on board, they're excited, but you get into the change and you, you start to really push on what the change means and how their processes are going to change or how their job is going to change. And then you start to see pushback. Have you seen any 
either examples of work groups or individuals where that was prevalent in this particular client? Yeah, well, yeah, I think I think so because initially when you're going through, uh, there, there's one big sp specific change impact that just pops up in my head. That's, I mean, it's completely changed, like flipping them 180 from the way they do it today. Uh, it's in a large part of the the organization with the operational side and and uh, key part of the business, and so as they're standardizing and pushing to that initially it's where we're watching the demos and seeing what it's going to be like uh but as the project has progressed it's uh there's been more and more frustrations and more involvement with other folks outside of the initial group and you can see that there's the water cooler talk uh and it's kind of transitioning and and bubbling up if you will right into something that's more extensive and more global uh it's impacting a ton of folks so i i don't know if i encompassed it enough from the intentional perspective but when when it's when it snowballs and it starts little and they're they're watching and they're on board and then it's it's just kept growing and growing we're, we're seeing from an outside view this you know it's the the snowballs as big as the house now right it's 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 gone to a point of escalation and explosion if you will so Maybe in the earlier stages. <laughs> yeah. So you see some some uh, fires burden or some fires brewing yes. as, as it relates to that. Yes, absolutely. And I'm sure Mitch or Nate could elaborate on that because everybody's been all hands on deck for conversations around this change impact specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, and they can put it from their lens of what they've seen from their side. And you know, I think the, the one thing that I that I would add and we and we have um, it's it's one of the predominant work streams within this organization has been from the beginning, they, they've they had this, oh, it's just a lift and shift mentality. We will literally take the old software, implement the new software. Everyone knows their job. The processes aren't going to change. Everything's really going to be the same with the exception of some minor changes to the look and feel. As you start to dig into it with this, with this work stream and with this team, you start to say, well, what about this change in functionality? And they, well, yeah, that's right. That is different. And it is different. So it, it kind of teeters that line between intentional and unintentional resistance. I think sometimes they've talked themselves into, yeah, it's going to be the same. We really don't have anything to worry about uh, just because that's a that's an easier answer than really digging into it. But once we start to dig into it, they start to say, you know, yeah, there is going to be a lot more change than we expected. And we really almost go through this exercise where we say, let's document what's not going to change and let's document what is going to change, even if it's minor changes to the to the platform and to the way you do your job. And when you look at that consolidated list of all the different changes and all the different things that won't change, it really opens their eyes to the fact that, yeah, this is a lot more than just putting a new software in place, clicking the button, going live, and we'll do our jobs the way we've done it all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what, um, what sort of change management issues or, or, uh, yeah, let's talk, let's start with issues. What, what sort of change management issues do you think have been the most difficult so far? And I'll, maybe I'll start with you, Mitch, when you look at this particular client, you know, what are some of the, either the cultural, just organizational resistance related dynamics, what it would have been the most challenge for this particular client? I think the some of the biggest challenges that we've run into so far have come from 
Um, again, the, the co-innovation and not really having a clear picture of, of what is, you know, they are changing to, not being able to speak to why things are changing in that way. So um, Kyler had a really good question you know, in, the, in the chat about explaining the why of an, of an organization um, of that size. And I think that really goes hand in hand with some of the challenges is you know, things are changing and sometimes the best explanation for, for why that is has been because they are. Um, and that's really not a good answer. Uh, we need to be able to tie the why back into things of this is changing and it is for this reason. Uh, if people understand what the, the change is, they're, they're a lot easier. Uh, it's a lot easier for them to get bought in and to get on board. And so our challenge has been um, communicating that why across the board and also you know, first understanding the what and then moving into the why. Um, and I think that we're kind of in the middle of that right now. So I think that's one of the big challenges for our team right now is to um, position the changes that are coming after we understand the what a little bit better um, and make sure that it's coming from, uh, you know, answering the what with the why in, in parallel with that so that then people are bought in and, and don't have that unintentional change or, um, you know, hit the water cooler to, to gripe about things rather than um, have a good understanding of, of the change in why that's happened. Right. Right. Yeah. I, might... I, I have to add to that because I had a thought is with what Mitch said is, is it's challenging for folks that are trying to do their part in the project too, when you have others from the business that are constantly taking up time to focus on one area when it's not their part of the process to say to escalate changes in that manner right so so you're dealing with a different type of collaboration internally as well where where we might have an hour session to get through specific topics and and the the folks on the call talk about the change pro impact when it's being standardized and it's more of an escalatory conversation that needs to go up the chain and needs to be an outside combo so i think that creates challenges internally with the project as it's ongoing. Uh, and also another key challenge from a change perspective, I, from what I've seen so far is because this is global, uh, there are different waves essentially for different uh, businesses that are gonna go live, you know, and, and you're seeing changes impacting one business that will be ch impacting others and they're seeing that and any decisions being made now with whether design decisions, uh, requirements, processes, there's impact to those other groups, but they're not they're they're not directly involved in the day to day. So that that definitely creates a challenge. Yeah, that, sort of the indirect impacts. Is that what you're talking about? Sort of yeah. like the downstream impacts or whatever. Yes. Okay. Yeah, there are decisions that are being made that will impact, you know, the challenge that, that I think Cam was alluding to is, you know, how much is enough involvement and how much is too much involvement? If you have too many cooks in the kitchen, uh, it makes it hard to, to move at a, at a pace that needs to be moved at for a project like this. Um, if you involved everyone, you could easily expand the scope and timeline of the projects. Um, so it's figuring out how much is enough involvement to make sure everyone's voice is heard, but that you're able to move at a brisk enough pace. Maybe yeah. 10x for these ones. <laughs> <laughs> We're having a great panel discussion here about change management and a case study related to that here with Nate, Mitch, and Cam. We've got more questions for the group when we come back, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control.
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 81. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, as well as all of the audio podcast platforms. And we are here in the middle of a conversation with our panel discussion of Nate, Cameron, and Mitch talking about a change management project with a large chemical manufacturer. So here's another related question from uh, Zam on LinkedIn. And Zam asks, as a change manager, I found it relatively easy to get the top management on board, but the challenge I face is with mid-level and frontline managers to even acknowledge the change that's happening. Any thoughts on how and what approach is best? And I'll start with you, Nate. That's a kind of a strategic question around how to get mid-level management on down. How do you get them on board, assuming the executives are already on board, or at least they're at least paying lip service to the fact that they're on board, at the very least, let's assume. So how do we get how do we get mid level management on down, uh, on board with change? You know, I I think that I think that where we've seen most of our success and and this this I think we run into almost with every organization again that we deal with from a change point of view is is just that uncertainty. So where we really have found a lot of success in getting engagement throughout the entire organization is putting together a really focused plan on what the steps are and not only outlining here's the five steps that we're going to take or here's the five areas we're going to focus on change but really why we're doing them what's the desired outcome and what th that means to the individual so getting buy-in at the executive level do you agree with all of these steps do you agree with what our desired outcome is how we're going to put them in place and how we're going to work with your organization. Once you get the executive level, then it's going to the, the mid-level and the end users and really getting that buy-in as well. So uh, I, I don't wanna oversimplify it, but I think it really comes down to putting together a very concise and um, direct plan on how you're going to do it. And again, that plan is going to change within the framework but really having, uh, we're going from here to here to here, and here's why we're doing it, getting buy-in from the end users as far as what the results are that you're going to produce, and really just getting started. And it's like, we, like we're finding with this client, getting started, starting to see some results, starting to see some buy-in to the process is going to get that momentum started. But without really a clear outline of what you're doing, a lot of people are going to just build the walls even higher than when you first got there. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Makes, makes total sense. Um, if, if we had to back up a bit and, and maybe come back to just sort of the general trends and lessons here in the, in this particular case study, what are some of, and I'll start with you on this, Nate, 
uh, on this question too, but what are some of the general change management lessons learned from the project so far? I'd be curious to hear what, what you all think, but I'll start with you, Nate. Yeah, and I'll, I'll probably I'll, I'll outline four, and and Mitch and and Cam, you can you can jump in or, or or circle back after I briefly introduce them. But I think first and foremost, it's never too late to start a change management engagement. We are ideally we would have been involved with the client that we're currently working with from the beginning. We were called in about six months into this implementation. We had a lot of a lot of catching up to do. Um, and a lot of uh, it had a lot of a lot of work to to really getting ingrained and, and get ourselves in place, starting with a with a late start from our side. That being said, it's never too late to start. And what what you've learned, and whenever you start your change management engagement, you've already learned a lot about what's worked throughout the organization and what their challenges are. So you really do, even though you're starting late to the game, you're starting with some knowledge, some knowledge of what's worked and some knowledge of what uh, what hasn't. Um, second, I would say is change is an ongoing effort. It's it's not, this is definitely something that is a dynamic process that you're not only going to be engaged in through go live, but post go live as well. So um, the, the one thing we're really learning with this client is, again, um, we're, we're, we're outlining the steps, we're outlining why we're doing it. But we're also out, you know, very quick to point out to this client, the answer today might not be the answer tomorrow. It's it's a it's a sliding scale and we're really working towards managing the change and managing what's going to be the best for them to to take best advantage of the platform we're implementing. Um, and then the last two, um, <clears throat> it's you know, this this is something that we're not familiar with. And, and I, I think we've Mitch and Cam and I have alluded to this a lot. We're, we're coming into a situation where people are, are not really comfortable with change management. They're not really familiar with the topic. So it's something that we really, you know, you, you really need to, again, at every point emphasize what we're doing and what's the desired outcome. And, um, you know, I think finally the, the biggest lesson we've learned and one of the major lessons we're, we're learning and, and growing with on this engagement is, um, celebrating what we've accomplished and really taking a stance of what we've accomplished, where we stand and where we're going and, and really starting to celebrate, you know, here's kind of some of the things that we're discovering. Here's some of the changes we're seeing and here's some of the, the results that are coming from it. So that as people are grinding through this, it's not just a, a slot, you know, just uh, wading through the marshes, but it's out actually saying, Hey, we're making progress and here's where we are on the, on the continual effort going forward. Yeah. Now, what about, I want to come back to the, actually the first one you mentioned, Nate, um, you playing catch up and, and us coming in six months in what, just help us understand what, what sort of uh, triggered this client to recognize relatively early. It was later than we'd like, and it wasn't ideal, but client did at some point relatively early in the project realized they needed change management help. What we're and this actually ties to a question that uh, uh, Kyler uh, has as well, which is um, you know what are what are some of the signs that that an uh, that an organization needs outside change management support, but in this case in particular, how how did the, what did the clients see? What were they seeing or feeling that made them realize that they needed help with change management? Uh, Mitch, do you, do you want to jump in that? I, I can answer it, but I think you've got a pretty good perspective. I saw you nodding your head there. Yeah, so 
I, I think I think everyone can can benefit in some degree from outside change. Just in the fact that that you come in with a completely unbiased third party opinion and observations. So um, I think the writing is on the wall in some way, shape, or form for just about every organization out there, especially with a project of this magnitude. Like if you're just in there. Go- and tackling things the way that you have always perfect at change management. And so getting um, a partner to come in and, and give you that unfiltered opinion and also game plan for how you can tackle some of the challenges, because there will be challenges, um, is incredibly valuable. So I, I think that that's a really broad answer to that. But um, I really do believe it's true for just about any organization, at least every single one that I've been engaged with. Hmm. And And I think... And I think to, to be a little more specific to this client as well, um, we we heard so much and we're still hearing it today. They they just came out of, or I guess they're just coming out of a, impl- a platform implementation, not an ERP platform, but an, another technology implementation that they they had a lot of challenges. And I think they they quickly realized in, in doing their post uh, implementation analysis that change the, when they addressed the change they had success when they let it be driven by the IT group only and not including the business that's when most of their challenges came forth so they really uh, are, are fresh out of you know I don't want to call it a failure because it was a successful implementation but I think they, there's a lot of battle scars that they're feeling and they were able to to identify the fact that they didn't have a real formal change management or change leadership as they call it program in place. And, and they really saw the need for it. So when they came to us and we outlined, here's what we can do. And they were able to tie that back to some of the success they had. They said, Hey, you know what, what you guys are selling us and what we've seen as success in the past, really they, they match. So we really can see the value in your solution. Let's get you involved, even though it's, we're starting a little bit late to the game, let's get you involved because we know, that this is an ongoing process and it's not just a nine month implementation, but it's an implementation and a post go live support as well. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great point. And, and great examples there of, of uh, how that, how that change or the need for change is, is recognized within this organization. Um, here's a really long question. It's, it doesn't even fit on the screen. So I'll, I'll try to paraphrase it here actually. Um, in fact, I'm going to take that away off the screen because the part I showed um, doesn't whoops, doesn't really help. Um, so the, the question here is from LinkedIn. I don't see who it's from, but it's someone on LinkedIn. It says, I'm hoping you guys could, could share your experiences or advice for someone in a senior le- leadership role during a digital transformation as part of a new merger and acquisition integration. And the question is, what specifically is the most effective way to address concerns without standing out as a potential roadblock in the transition? For example, if the parent company, the acquiring company, is wholly trusting the ERP consultants and appears to be actively resisting any sort of quality assurance or independent verification uh, validation, uh, and maybe I'll broaden that question a bit to say, you know, I'll rephrase, I'll rephrase the question a bit differently, um, and hopefully it still gets to the heart of what what the question uh, is real, what they're trying to get at, and that is. Um, if, how do how do we how do we go about this change stuff? Knowing if we back up and we know that the change in the human side of 
of change is going to be the, the critical path. It's going to be the thing that takes the longest or one of the longer activities in a work stream, not because we're not good at change management, not because no one wants to change necessarily, but just because changing humans takes a lot longer typically than throwing in new technology. So how can we frame as, as change management practitioners or even just a, a transformation team, how can we frame change management as something that's not a roadblock or an obstacle to changing and not something that slows us down, but something that actually speeds us up, if that makes sense. I think that's, that is the heart of what this person I think is asking in terms of the M&A integration example. What, what are your thoughts? Maybe uh, any one of you might have an immediate thought there. Yeah, um, I would say, you know, th this question did come from a, a senior leadership perspective. Um, and I think in that the advice that I would give and, and something that we always try and do at least you know, I do personally when we're engaged in this, from a place of trying to build trust. Um, since it is such a human-centric uh, thing that is change management, um, the building that trust is an integral part. And if you don't have that trust, there's going to be resistance, both intentional and unintentional. So um, starting from a place of you know, understand, then build that trust with, with both sides, the parent and the you know, child organizations, trust on both sides. Um, will allow you to navigate what those changes are and it, you are slowing down. Uh, I think it's okay to acknowledge that you're slowing down, but you're slowing, I had a, a manager used to say, you know, slow down to speed up and you're getting better at what you're doing. It enables you to go faster in the long run, but right now we are slowing down, we're taking our time, we're taking a thoughtful approach to how we're handling this because if we speed through it, it's gonna jeopardize the rest of what we're trying to build and accomplish. And I think labeling and identifying that and, and being okay with that and coming from a place of building trust um, is a great way to navigate that. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, I, I think, first of all, you have to recognize what, what you're going fast towards. I think a lot of times organizations think, well, this change management stuff, it slows us down. We're worried too much about people. We should just be building technology. Well, the reality is in that case, yes, you're moving quickly, but you're moving really quickly towards a cliff and you're about to go off that cliff. So so change, yeah. you could argue that change management is an obstacle or it's it's slowing down your change. Well, it's I guess you could say that, but it's also it's keeping you off from jumping off a cliff. I mean, why not nudge the organization in a direction that's actually going to be a lot more productive and of benefit uh, longer term? I think that's really the question. That, yeah, I, I'd, I'd kind of spin that question into that follow up thread there. Well, and, and the thing is, is how do you how do if you don't package and understand the change and then develop action planning around it? Uh, you get to the, okay, we put it in and we go live. Now what? You drop support. You don't work with your folks. Now they start creating workarounds. They don't adopt the change. They're going to try to get the work done however possible. And and now you potentially cause more heartache and pain because you're going to have to come in and, and try to work through those. And those those pains and those, those workarounds and those issues following post-go live can trickle to customers. It can trickle out to other folks, which could potentially cost you. Uh, so I think the go slow to, to go faster makes sense from a perspective of encompass the change, understand what it is, create proper action planning around it in post go live support. And, and this is coming from the mindset of somebody who's in the trenches digging and, and, and is seeing it, right? It's, it's how we do, we create action around it, right? Not just talk about it, but what we do about it. And that's having support from leadership, senior leaders. And then that messaging, communication, training, engagement that we do within the mid-level to the bottom, right? Senior leaders or strategy, what, what's the vision, mid-tiers, 
how are we going to do what are we going to do to manage this and users and uh, the lower level tier how what do we how do we do it right mm -hmm. so it's, it's different levels of engagement yeah yeah it makes total sense so in the in the minute or two we have left here i want to ask sort of a lightning round summary sort of a question to, to tie this all together and I'll start with you uh, on this one, Cameron, but what advice would you give to an organization about to embark on a big change initiative like this one? Knowing what you know now and what you learned in this particular case study and others, um, what, what advice would you give? What, how would you summarize the advice you'd give? Okay. So me overall, it would be to develop a strong governance structure for your project that's in tied with your organizational structure. That, that way you have leadership support from the top down. And ultimately with that, finding folks within the organization that are the right leaders, right? And, and sometimes you might not be able to find them, but the right leaders are those that are dynamic, flexible. They are knowledgeable across streams. Uh, they work streams or functions in the business. They, they've been, they, they are, they have a vision of the future as well, and they could communicate well with your people. If you don't have that, the advice is to find an organization, a third party or group like third stage, for instance, that can come in as a coach, an advisor and help you through that process, develop it, develop your people into those roles in the project. Because sometimes you're going to assign folks and then they're, they might not be really a, a, able to handle that position at the current point. But as you coach and work them through it and develop them, they're going to take on that role within the organization and the project. And it's ultimately going to help you to be successful. Yeah, that's great advice. How about you, Mitch? What would you what would you add? I'd say uh, make the investment upfront in understanding where you are at. Um, you know, these projects are often emotional. Uh, it's just the nature of them. And so facts kind of help you make sure that things stay unemotional. So understanding your current state uh, with facts, with diagrams, with, with uh, a really solid rock solid understanding of where you're at and where you need to go um, can help you to navigate some of the changes and the emotions that come from the changes. Um, and then, you know, since it's not a perfect science, um, you know, everyone can be better at change management, even the best change management or getting that that outside perspective is, is really helpful. And, um, you know, lean on lean on your lean on your support. Yeah, makes sense. And last but not least, how about you, Nate? What what advice would you give to an organization about to start a big change initiative like this one? You know, I think that the most important and we've hit on it a little bit here, but I think um, it, it we see it with, with every client and that is. You have to have buy-in and you have to have leadership. Leadership needs to drive the change. They can't just go to their organization and say, guys, it's time for you to change. You take this program and you run with it. Leadership has to be involved along with everyone else in the organization to drive the change home. So I think with be it a, be it a change management project, uh, uh, any implementation, any project, any digital transformation project, the change has to start at the top and it has to be consistent throughout the project. Yeah, it's great. Great advice. I mean, those are all three really good responses. And, uh, you know, this is a topic we could we could easily spend another hour or two or three talking about. So I really appreciate your guys' time. And uh, we, we started to scratch the surface. And I suppose that that probably means we, we should do a follow up at some point and go, go even deeper, or, or especially once you've gotten a little bit further into the change initiative, just to see what additional lessons learned you have. It'd be interesting to pick that up again uh, later. So all right. Thanks, Nate, Cameron, and Mitch, and to the audience for the great questions there. That was a great conversation, great case study, a lot of good lessons learned there. Of course, we could have talked another hour or more about that topic and still not really gotten through everything we wanted to, but hopefully that, that gives the audience a good starting point for what to think about as it relates to change management. 
on your digital transformation. In fact, we're going to unpack a few of the threads and pull on a few of the threads that we touched on here uh, when we come back from a quick break. But first, we'll take that break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 81. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and we just had our panel discussion on the show talking about change management and a case study of change management at a large multinational client that we work with. Uh, what were some of your thoughts and takeaways from listening in, to that conversation, Kyler? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's so interesting The um, Mitch had mentioned the meet them where you are type of um, approach. And and I wondered if we could kind of dig into that just for a second, because meeting them where they are is certainly important in being able to establish that trust. And then is the next approach within that methodology that you do provide recommendations? Because I assume at some point you kind of have to have a little bit of a, a come to Jesus conversation of, you know, this this is what we need to be able to do as far as creating change or creating uh, a plan for success. Yeah, that's a great question. We didn't we didn't dive into that in a ton of detail um, in the conversation, but I thought it was a very insightful comment from Mitch about meeting them, meeting the client where they are. And I think what happens is a lot of, a lot of organizations, especially leadership within the organizations will say, let's not worry too much about where we are today because it doesn't matter. It's broken. We're trying to fix it. We want to focus on the future state. And you do need to do that. You need to focus on the future state, but once you have that future state vision, now you need to sort of back up and say, okay, well, where are we today? And how big of a jump is it from where we are today to where we're going and how are we going to get there and how long is it going to take? Uh, because it's too easy to say that we'll just put in new technology and that will solve our problems and get us to the future state. To Mitch's point, we have to meet, start, at least start with where they are today and then help them through that journey and transition to the future. And when I say they, I mean the employees and the, the team at any organization. So that's a really insightful point and a really important one. And the other thing that's important, not just from a, this isn't even just a change management issue uh, to be candid. It's also a, a project planning and an overall strategy uh, topic because organizations that are taking this big of a leap, if I can get it on the camera here, this big of a leap, a big leap, that's a lot different than the ones that are taking more of that incremental leap um, that maybe is still material, but it's not as big of a jump. And those are two very different timelines. It's two very different strategies, resourcing plans, budgets. But the problem with our, with our industry today is that you have the concept of best practices or boilerplate approaches where software vendor comes in and says, we can do this implementation in 18 months with no consideration of how big of a jump is it. Some organizations might be able to do it in 18 months, but a lot of them are going to take 
12 months and some of them might take 36 months and some of them might be somewhere in between. So you, you have to have that as an input into your overall digital strategy, not just for your change management plan as well. And, and I think that that concept of that co-innovation that you mentioned um, and kind of that house example that, uh, that Nate gave about that, that customization and understanding that input from almost the general contractor of the project, right, or the project manager a lot of times in these cases. And I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a little bit of an example of that standardization versus customization balancing point, and maybe give us some key indicators that you've gone too far one way on that teeter-totting slope. Yeah. It's a great question, and it's definitely a uh, a qualitative assessment that you have to do in, in many ways. So it's it's more art than science. But what I'd say is, first of all, if we back up and answer a couple or get a couple fundamental points out on the table, one is that as noble as it sounds, most organizations find that it's completely unrealistic to do a zero customization approach to any sort of transformation. Typically, there's going to be some level of customization required if you're using any sort of off-the-shelf software that's trying to be everything to everyone because it's not going to be everything you need it to be. And therefore you're going to change it. So, so you kind of set that aside and say, okay, we're going to have to do some degree of customization, but how much is the right amount and how do we ensure that we're not doing too much? The other competing or conflicting point to, to bring up is that once you start customizing, it's a very slippery slope because then you start to create some change management issues or you start to perpetuate change management issues, which are that well, hey, I don't have to change. I can just change the technology. We don't really have to change. Let's just have the developers create something for us that just mimics our old way of doing things. So that's another extreme that just by doing um, customization once doesn't mean that's where you're headed, but it's sort of like, a, I hate to bring drugs into this, but it's almost like a gateway drug. You, you do one thing at customization, all of a sudden you, you've customized the entire thing just because you become so hooked on it or you, you believe that you can and you should change the software. So you just recognize those competing realities and also know that oftentimes the need or want to customize is a is a, uh, a symptom of not having done enough change management and not manage the change well. So, so in other words, the resistance to change is oftentimes what fuels the need or want to customize and you have to recognize that. And then the last thing I'll say is that not all of your business processes and functions are created equally. So there's gonna be certain parts of your business where you say, look, I don't care how painful it is. We're going to impose kind of off the shelf software functionality in that part of the business. And we're going to change our business to fit, fit the software. The other, the other bucket is more of our competitive advantage, things that are uh, super critical uh, to being successful. And it's our differentiator in the marketplace. We're not going to water that down just because the software can't do what we want it to do. So in those cases, we're going to be more likely to customize we might get some kind of third-party bolt-on system. We might create some sort of different process, whatever it is. They're, you're more likely or more flexible to change the technology in those areas. So every business typically has two buckets like that, that you, you separate your processes or functions into and which ones you fall into which bucket are, are going to be different for every organization. But I think if you think of it that way, then it, it sort of puts some more realistic parameters in place instead of an all-or-nothing sort of a scenario. It lets you be a little bit more strategic and deliberate about it. Well, absolutely. And I think everything you just said is, is in so important on the awareness scale, right? You're just being able to see, oh, wait, 
you know, what are we actually talking about? What are we actually asking of the system or of our teams internally as well? So, um, <clears throat> excuse me for those of you that are listening to us on audio. My kids brought home uh, a cold from starting school, so <laughs> so that's why I I sound so sultry right um, right now. But it's not at all because I'm mad about the customization in any way. <laughs> but. There are a few things I, I also kind of want to dig into when it, it comes to indicators because they can have a huge impact. So we have that concept of kind of that water cooler talk, misperceptions around what's going on with the project or the technology, those types of things. And then also understanding that unintentional resistance. What are some tactics that organizational leaders can use to be able to identify that those are happening because I can only imagine they can get incredibly out of control without even surfacing sometimes until it's it's kind of too late and the project has has suffered severe disruption. Yeah, it's a great question and, and we didn't get to that either in the conversation, but you know, some of the biggest most important things you can do is first of all bring them to the surface. So there's I started to talk with the team about during the conversation, the panel discussion, I talked to them about the uh, the organizational readiness assessments that we do. There's a quantitative and qualitative uh, thread for each of them for for those assessments. And the idea there is that you want to really understand the culture, the strengths and weaknesses of the culture, and start to anticipate where the chain the unintentional points of resistance are going to be. Some examples of what red flags we look for, even if on the surface everyone's on board, everyone's saying, "Hey, we're excited for this change, we're willing to change." Um, we support it. We understand the why, you know, understanding the why is just a really small part of it. It's important, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. Now we need to get below the surface of the iceberg or the tip of the iceberg and understand what is it that's probably going to trigger people into resisting change, or at the very least not supporting the change the way that we need them to. And some examples of the things we look for are some of them are more culturally based, more widespread culture aspects of an organization, things like uh, poor communication, poor collaboration, uh, lack of understanding across different departments, those sorts of things can lead to unintentional resistance. And again, resistance has sort of a negative connotation where you think it must be coming from a bad place. It's not, it's usually not coming from a bad place. It's usually not because people want to be difficult. It's usually because they don't understand, they haven't collaborated in the past, and it's a big change for them. So that's, that's where that comes from. So you look for those, those uh, underlying causes of resistance, like lack of collaboration or communication, lack of trust of leadership, things like that. Then there's also more individual or work group based threads. You know, on, on one hand, you look for things that, that are universal across the culture, across the organization, but then you have to look at other things that are more specific to individual work groups or departments or locations within a business. So that's where you start to look for things like, um, you know, one part of the business might have been an acquisition. It was a company that we acquired in different part of the world. They have a different culture. They're a lot more nimble and flexible or entrepreneurial, whatever you want to call it. Whereas the parent company is more standard, more common way of doing things. And, and there could be potential cultural conflict there. So you have to anticipate that and say, well, those two things, if we haven't, if we haven't fully integrated those cultures yet, and now we're putting in a single technology to try and integrate the business, that's going to create tension. Not to say we should avoid it or just ignore it, but to say that's, we need to work through that. That's going to be a big change management issue. So we really need to double down our efforts on the change management front. So you start to look for things that we know from experience cause resistance to change rather than waiting 
to feel the resistance to change. Cause by the time you feel the resistance to change, you, that's usually late in the project and you're usually just about to go live and you start to realize, wow, there's a lot of resistance here and it's a lot more than I realized. Eric, is there any type of technology that you can help use to identify those, um, those areas of resistance, whether it's, you know, looking at, um, surveys from organizational readiness or even a user adoption platform? Is there anything that might help from a data perspective that's a, a bit easier to kind of mine in that? Uh, yes, it's funny you should say that. You must be a, a marketing person. You're, you're all about messaging and uh, getting the right, the right message in there. <laughs> right. I'm just about, like, I can only imagine as this a billion-dollar company, how in the world am I supposed to know what people are talking about at a water cooler? Like, I really hope that I would have that pulse, but an organization that size that's been put together with mer merger and acquisitions that has so many different subcultures, I can only imagine the challenge of trying to get in front of something that you're not even really sure exists until it does, and then it's a really big and expensive problem at that point. Yeah, so some of the things that we would use, you know, we use it at third stage, we use a, uh, an online organizational readiness assessment platform that that measures that they gets inputs from throughout the organization from employees throughout the organization to measure different parts of culture communication leadership styles just different parts of the organization and we analyze that and benchmark that to other organizations to say based on what we see in the quantitative results the these are the areas where we think there's going to be problems and we also do a qualitative uh, assessment too which is usually more I hate to say manual, but it is manual. It's through the, a series of focus groups and discussions with different parts of the organization to get qualitative data to, to augment the quantitative data we get from the online survey tool. So you combine those two things and that gives you a basis for understanding where the resistance to change is going to be. And more importantly, what the change strategy and tactics are going to be most effective for that situation. You also mentioned user adoption. We use a user adoption tool to ensure that people have resources to, to help automate or to provide them digital support at the right times um, throughout a transformation to ensure they understand new processes, how to use the new tools, they understand the roles and responsibilities, all that stuff. So there's user adoption tools uh, as well that we use um, later in the pro pro project. Usually it uh, comes after the organizational readiness assessments are, are done the, at least the first round. So that gives that heat map type of, of quantitative approach to where there, where, um, you know, there are these pockets of potential resistance that really comes out of knowing your organization. Um, I don't often get a huge lens into our great client work here because I'm so busy telling our audience how amazing we are and, and bringing, uh, you know, the cutting edge of pig zombies to our um, podcast here. But recently, I am a part of the um, one of these projects simply because we're bringing some thought leadership into it. And uh, the, the organizational readiness assessment really showcased areas in which they need to address as an executive team from a data-driven approach. And I think a lot of times they were absolutely shocked that that was the place that they, as an organization, really needed to address. So I think just hitting home that understanding where your organization is right now through these tools, and then also taking that approach in your strategy to address those right now, not think, oh, you know, this is just 
one department that feels this way or this this is just you know a, a subset of stakeholders well that subset of stakeholders can have a lot of power to completely derail the project and we've seen it time and time again so i think that's so important yeah and i think one of one of the things we didn't talk about on there too was that um we are we didn't go into detail was that there you know we i think nate mentioned that we started the uh change management work stream about six months into the project. And that, that left us a little over a year or it leaves us a little over a year uh, until the project is intended to be completed or at least the major phase of it. Um, but what I would say is that, you know, in cases where you start it earlier than that, you start up front before you ever start the technical work stream, that's going to speed up the project because it's the, it's the change management stuff that usually slows down a project. And when you push it off and don't start it till later, that just further delays what was already going to get delayed in the first place. So, if you can get ahead of that and start the change management stuff early, you're actually going to accelerate the project and the technical work stream then will will sort of be in sync with the, the human work stream, which the human work stream always takes longer just because we as humans change a lot slower and are a lot, we're just a lot more difficult than, than the technology piece during a, during a transformation. Absolutely. And in the last thought I wanted to ask you about is kind of, it's that it's a journey approach, right? How do you balance it's a journey with knowing that change fatigue is a real thing and can be, you know, a, pen, a potential disruptor or failure point in, in a digital transformation project too? How do, how do you um, balance those two? Yeah. And so change fatigue, just to give a brief definition, change fatigue is when organization changes too much within too little time and people are now tired and starting to resist change because they just can't handle any more change. They're still trying to figure out the changes and get used to the changes that have already been introduced. And now you're throwing new changes at them and they just can't keep up. So that, that in its core essence is, is what change fatigue is. So the question then is to your question, how do you, how do you balance that? You just have to, first of all, align it with your culture. I think a lot of times organizations are unrealistic about who they really are. And it goes back to Mitch's point about meeting where you are today. Um, so you need to recognize that, you know, if you're a risk adverse company, you historically change very slowly. Now, all of a sudden you're going to change really quickly. That's a culture shock. So not to say you can't do it, but just be prepared that that's high risk. That means you've got to get real serious about change management and really make sure you, you focus on those things. So um, that's, that's probably the best thing I can think of is just, just align it with your culture and be realistic about what it is you're, you're trying to accomplish in what amount of time. Absolutely. Well, great conversation and great to see some faces that are typically very busy on the client side here at Third Stage. Um, so thank you to um, Mitch and Cam um, and uh, Nate for joining us. Uh, that was a great conversation, really insightful. Yeah, it was a great conversation. I appreciate having them on the show and audience had great questions as always. So we really appreciate that. Um, so we're going to we're going to dive into uh, more topics and more discussion. We're going to move on to our third major segment here. After a quick break, we're going to have Christy Barber, who's a, a manager here at Third Stage Consulting. She's been on the show uh, multiple times in the past. She's going to talk about the evolution of QuickBooks and the evolution from the desktop to the online version. So if you're a small or mid-sized organization that's using QuickBooks or thinking about QuickBooks or trying to move away from QuickBooks, this is a great conversation and, and an interview that you had in the past or, or recently in the past with uh, Christy Kyler. So, so we'll play that clip here in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Wonder, wonder. 
you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 81. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and you can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, as well as all of the audio podcast platforms. Be sure to subscribe to us, check us out, and leave us a review too, if you don't mind. We take that feedback very seriously and uh, use it to uh, get ideas for future content, so we appreciate that in advance. I wanted to shift gears a bit and play you a clip from an interview, Kyler, that you had a chance to do with Christy Barber on the Third Stage Consulting team. And you guys discussed the evolution of QuickBooks, moving from QuickBooks desktop to the online version, and in particular, this issue with UK compliance and, and just making sure that you're compliant with UK laws. And I suspect there might be other laws throughout the world where this is relevant as well, but you guys tend to hone in in this conversation on, on the UK laws. So really good stuff, especially if you're a global organization, just trying to figure out how to, how to manage the global regulatory aspects of this. So let's play the clip and then you and I will come back and we'll, we'll sort of unpack some of these threads here a bit more. But here's the, uh, here's the interview between Kyler and Christy talking about the evolution of migrating QuickBooks. Christy, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're very excited. So if you could just give our audience community a, a quick background on how you help our clients and, and your specialized role here at Third Stage. Yeah, so I predominantly work with small businesses, um, helping them move off of QuickBooks onto an ERP solution, looking at processes, where do we need to make some more efficiencies, finding those gaps where current software isn't uh, hitting the mark, and then looking for other softwares that can possibly do that. So a lot of times making a best of breed solution on that. Um, so yeah, extensive accounting background coming at you today. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we need that for our QuickBooks conversation. So kind of to start us out, you give us the status of this kind of new development in the QuickBooks ecosystem. Yeah, so last year, QuickBooks announced that they were going to get rid of their desktop version in the UK. So this doesn't 100% affect U.S. base, but you're always looking at, hey, is this coming our way soon? And so they decided that as of January 31st of 2023, desktop um, version of QuickBooks is gone in the U.K. and you have to move to QuickBooks Online or you would have to move to a different financial package, whether that's an ERP or a different solution if you don't like the web version of QuickBooks. So what would be the difference between, like, what are some key functional differences between QuickBooks desktop and QuickBooks um, on the web version? There's quite a few. QuickBooks desktop, I think one thing that's nice about it, if you have poor internet, you it doesn't require anything. 
yeah. you can just hop on your computer and go similar to like an on-prem type deal, mm -hmm. but the reporting is better. You can search within reports better. You can set them up the way that you want them. Whereas QuickBooks online is uh, more wants you to export it to Excel and then manipulate the data there. So like a good example is I can go into QuickBooks, QuickBooks desktop. I can look at my PL and I can, you know, drill down. Let's say I want to see all my repairs. I can sort that then by name of vendor. I can't do that in QuickBooks Online. I can only sort by date, memo, and amount. And so therefore you have to export it to Excel, kind of look, see what you're looking for, and then go back through into the web version and do that. So there's there's little things like that that are, eh, this isn't the best, but it, it I mean, it's doable. Um, QuickBooks Online also slower to use. There's a lot of hang time, and that is something that they are trying to make better. They put out an announcement, I think it was a month or two ago, about how they're trying to put some more R&D into making their solution quicker, like other softwares are. So what is the reason behind that migration? Because it sounds like there are kind of some pain points around the desktop versus the online version. So what is kind of the, the mentality behind discontinuing the desktop version? So their reasoning behind it, this is coming from QuickBooks, is that you are not staying compliant when you're buying desktop because you can buy... Like a good example, I have a client right now, they're on QuickBooks 2018. There's no need to update because they don't do bank feeds, they don't do payroll from it, they don't do payments. They're just keeping it as a bookkeeping system. So therefore they're not out of compliance. They're just, you know, keeping it like a check register. Mm -hmm. For people that do get bank feeds and different feeds that would come into the QuickBooks, then that part is they they can be loosely non-compliant i guess they would just be having to hand enter everything in mm -hmm. instead of getting a feed so i have another client they are on quickbooks 2019 and they're that way they're like well feeds don't work anymore oh well we're just going to keep using this until we're at a good place where we can upgrade to a different software because the newer version of quickbooks desktop in the states is a subscription model so it's kind of a hybrid cloud desktop so you're paying yearly for a desktop version because QuickBooks is trying to say, well, that way we can keep you compliant. Um, so, yeah. So it sounds like from not only the the user side, because we know that the UK has a lot of strict compliance yeah. regulations. Um, so that would make sense, I think, for that marketplace. But it sounds like they're also trying to move to a SaaS-based model that we, we know is kind of the evolution of the business model for software mm -hmm. vendors or our core ERP vendors. Would you say that's that's correct? That's, yeah. And I don't know if you remember, there's a there's a software out there, Zero, and they came out trying to be QuickBooks competitor, oh gosh, probably like seven, eight, eight plus years ago. And they were always cloud-based. And it was a new thing. And that was before QuickBooks really went into the cloud side. They were kind of, you know, putting their toe in the water on it. And I think people are starting to see as we're moving to more SaaS-based, it's easier because if you travel and you have you know, a different laptop for travel versus what you have in your office, you could easily log in, get something done. Whereas hey, you got to wait till you get back to the office if it's a desktop to be able to print a check or look something up.
So there's a lot of pluses with online for that respect. Absolutely. As long as you have that connectivity, which a lot of yeah, times sure. I think, and, and obviously you would know much, much better than me, but specifically in our global emerging markets, that small business connectivity can be a really big challenge. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to businesses that are considering a more basic financial system like QuickBooks that might be in a marketplace that doesn't have a ton of that infrastructure in place? And I think with that, at least for in the U.S., you can stay QuickBooks desktop and you would just go on the subscription model where they have it broken out by how many users you need. So, for example, I think it's like 500 bucks a year for two users. Mm -hmm. um, so you could move to a model like that. The other thing I have seen is they put it like if you have a really good infrastructure inside the company, you mm -hmm. put it on a server. And then you have a virtual machine that logs into the server to be able to access it that way. Um, I've seen some things like that. So with with that and knowing that this is, a, you know, a migration or a push towards um, more of that Internet Internet based system. Is this a time when these types of companies should go through an evaluation to see if that software still makes sense for them? Or what would you recommend from that business advisory perspective? Yeah, I think that it's kind of a great place to be in a lot of ways because how many companies out there where you kind of been wavering of, oh, should I keep this another year? Or should I really look into a more sophisticated software to be able to get the company where it needs to go? And I think this is that kind of the fork in the road. Do you want to stay and then just move to an online version if you're UK or US to subscription base? Or do you want to start evaluating, is there something else out there that's better based on the needs of my company? And I know you and I have talked about this on previous Mm -hmm. podcast too of um, when we get to inventory and how QuickBooks doesn't do inventory and is your company heavy based inventory and you're having to do it in Excel or like Fishbowl or various add-on to QuickBooks that kind of does the job but doesn't quite hit mm -hmm. it exactly and that's that's another good time to start looking at it. And, and we talked kind of about inventory, so I want to expand on that just a little bit. What are some other sort of key components that might showcase that a business is ready to kind of graduate from the QuickBooks um, overall uh, system? So inventory is always one. Second is reporting. Are you getting the reports that you need to make business decisions? QuickBooks is limited. You get your basic P&L um, balance sheet some of those but with erp software you can have specific reporting by department your alley you're doing more cost accounting where quickbooks can do kind of a hybrid cost accounting by class um so that makes it a little you know something that you may be looking forward to in a in erp you can also do like budgets um erp softwares let you do budget versus actual so you could make a budget in an excel spreadsheet upload it to your erp software and then it's comparing the actual to it so at the end of the quarter the end of the month you can see hey did i hit my marks am i on par to get our goals um those are like i always think the two really big mm -hmm. ones and is the accounting software that you have today do meeting your needs. For example, if QuickBooks doesn't have the roles, sometimes the roles and responsibilities that you want to 
hold back and view only here or edit only here for certain people. And you can get that with an ERP. Absolutely. I, th I think that makes a, a lot of sense. And, and kind of on the flip side, when we talk about budgets, specifically when we talk about costs, obviously an ERP system, a core ERP system, or a, a bigger best of breed financial based system can be a, a significant investment um, for smaller businesses. Can you talk a little bit about just the overall balance of understanding that QuickBooks still is a very sophisticated system and, and might be the choice for the client, um, but also understanding that they could go into a greater functionality with a core ERP um, for a greater cost. So how do you kind of weigh the balances of the pros and cons of that switch? A lot of it comes down to cost. You know, how much money do you have that you could allocate to a new software? Does it make sense now to do that? Does it make sense to kind of look at it, get an idea of what something would cost and then save towards it. And I know we've talked about that too, mm -hmm. of different ways that you can purchase software, whether it's you're getting a loan from the bank or you know various ways that way that you can move towards it. There's also software out there. So a good example is NetSuite. NetSuite has a begin, like I call it the beginner package of an ERP. So if you're a smaller company, like 500,000 and under, there is an ERP system for you. So it's kind of just moving slowly into that. It's more um, the finance package of it, but it could be a way that it's a easy spend. Mm -hmm. And then that way, as you grow into it, you can start bolting on the other things mm -hmm. your, your business needs. And that's Absolutely. a way to start. And some of the other softwares are that way too. I mean, you can have minimal users, other ERP softwares, you have to have X users before the solution would make sense. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think it's always a challenge for our small to even medium-sized business community um, to have kind of that cash capital on hand mm -hmm. to be able to purchase some of these bigger systems. So I'm curious to hear as we, we talk about QuickBooks moving to a SaaS model. We see a lot of other cloud-based systems, you know, coming out um, to really migrate onto that latest and greatest um, SaaS system. Is SaaS cheaper for these types of businesses in the fact that they can kind of spread the wealth, if you will? It is more of a subscription as opposed to a bulk licensing fee right up front. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So QuickBooks is different in that way so compared to an erp so erp you could have a subscription model you pay every quarter mm -hmm. you can also do an on-prem and you pay x dollars up front and then you have your you know your license subscriptions and or not license sorry maintenance subscriptions that you would pay quickbooks has always been hey i could buy quickbooks 2000 and it's still going to work today because nothing's really changed about it. I can still write checks, make deposits and look at reports. There is some added functionality that, you know, that's come over the years, but it made it a lot easier for small businesses to afford mm -hmm. an accounting software where, and even then the entry point isn't that expensive. You could buy, you know, one for 250, $300 on the pro and plus side. And then when you move enterprise then it's, more money, but still looking at that. And then you say, hey, now you got to move to an online version mm -hmm. of QuickBooks, which is, I think they run like $50 a month. 
and you think about that over the years, how many updates are really coming that I can, this is how I always think, the accountant in me that gets cheap sometimes. How many updates can I see that justify me paying for this $50 a month subscription model versus the desktop that I had that I don't, it gives me some updates, mostly for security purposes, mm -hmm. but that's it. And it does everything I need it to do. And I think that's where a lot of small businesses get to that model is why do I want to spend money on something when this meets my needs today? And QuickBooks is eventually going to force people to, to make a decision. And if you can get ahead of that decision today and start preparing internally down to like a change management part of, can we accept the change that we're going to have to move to a SaaS model eventually? And what does that look like for our organization? And can you elaborate on the change management part? Because um, I think a lot of times change management, specifically in small businesses, are is misunderstood because they are smaller and they think that, you know, just an email, we're moving to this, you know, good luck to you. And, right. <laughs> the fact, and they often don't have a ton of budget to invest in those change management tactics. So can you kind of talk about how important that is and maybe give an example of what you would do in, in migrating to a QuickBooks online version versus desktop from a change standpoint? Yeah. So with the change, it's really just getting people on board for something. It's not saying it's one way or the highway. It's getting buy-in and helping your employees, whether you have only one employee or you have 100 employees, that they are invested in the decisions that the business are making and they see the good that's going to come from it. They also are able to see, hey, this isn't really going to affect my job and make my position go away. It's going to enhance my position and make things easier or um, I'm allowed to spend less time doing certain tasks so I can actually catch up on these other tasks that I've been wanting to do. So I think mm -hmm. that's like the whole encompassing part of change management and a good example of how you could help your accounting department move from desktop to a SaaS model is explaining what this looks like, how, mm -hmm. you know, what are some fears around it? What are the pluses that are going to come from it for them and is there training that's going to be involved because they've always used desktop they've never seen online version what is that going to look like and even for if you move to a erp system there's there's going to be that transition too so whether it's yeah. quickbooks online or it's a SaaS model erp for finance there's still going to be this tribal knowledge that you have of how your accounting department works today and how you're going to bring that into something new and share that within the team. Um, yeah, I think about that a lot of just most accounting departments, they run the same because it's you have AR, you have AP. Mm -hmm. But then you have unique things about what your company does. Do you do consolidations? Do you do rebates? Do you have, you know, different things like that that start making it unique and complex in some ways? And I think helping people understand what that looks like and to get buy-in. And good example is a client I worked with a few years ago, they were moving to a new POS system mm -hmm. and they were going that route first before they were getting, you know, any other financial software and there wasn't any buy-in and everybody thought this new POS system was going to get rid of the cash cashiers. And it's like, no, we need you. This is why we need you. Mm -hmm. And you know, putting together a plan for that and getting the buy-in of, hey, it's not key in every number anymore. It's 
and you slide a badge or you use your thumbprint to log into the register so we know nobody's using your drawer. Mm -hmm. And then here's how the touch screen works. Oh, you can also hand key. And for some of the older people that had been there a long time, they're like, you're gonna, you're gonna take my job away. And it's like, no, no, like let me show you how you're gonna really like this. Yeah. And training them to get invested in it just as much as the company was. And I think that was the downside of this smaller business was they make decisions at the executive level. Mm-hmm. And they don't really communicate that to anybody else. Yeah. Well, this is what we're doing and that's it. You better get on board. And I, I understand that because when it's a small business, you can't have too many, you know, people whispering, hey, we should do this or that. You have to make a decision. But when you're making that decision, you need to start getting the managers and some of the associates involved as well so they can communicate further down. This is what we're going to be doing. And this is what it's going to look like, the plan. Absolutely. And and how important is it to bring in kind of that agnostic, independent, third-party view within a small business community? Um, because I feel like a lot of times, specifically within ERP software vendors, it can be very challenging to navigate the sales narrative and understand that just because you don't know what you don't know. You know, just I don't yeah. know how to plumbing in a house. So I would call a plumber type of thing. So can you, uh, can you help us understand kind of your role and that value you bring to our client community? Yeah. So coming in and getting a different picture, maybe than what you've had, because I know a lot of times small businesses, you're going to get tons of emails from softwares all the time. Buy us, we're the best, you know, or this is a new software you have to have. And it can get overwhelming and not understanding what is going to be the best fit for you uh, today and in the future based on the goals that you have. And where we at third stage can come in and provide a lot of value is let's evaluate what it, what are your business goals? Who are you today? Where do you want to be three to five years from now? Where do you want to be 10 years from now? And then work backwards from there to see, yes, you know, these softwares over here, these are going to be the best fit for you. These they would work, but they wouldn't be the best. And then continually narrowing that down and, you know, demoing the software like we always do with them to get a good idea. Yeah. Does this fit? Do people like the look and feel of the software? Do they want to use it? Is the sales process, are the, is this vendor somebody you want to work with for the next 10 plus years? Mm -hmm. And do you think that in viewing that type of of relationship, specifically when it comes to QuickBooks versus the desktop moving to the online version, is that advisory level still needed? I don't think so, other than if you're on the fence wanting to know, should I go QuickBooks online or is it time to move to a different software? I think that's where it comes in because if you're moving desktop to online, it's pretty simple. There's a button that's inside QuickBooks desktop that says convert to online and it will pull your data to online. And it's pretty hands off. But yeah, I think it comes down to, is this going to, is this going to meet the needs of the company going online? Absolutely. And, And would you view that, that migration as a new implementation, as we often talk about things like upgrades and treating them like an actual implementation. It sounds like this might be a bit more turnkey. Yeah, it's like a little mini integration. You're just making sure that all the data came over correctly. And QuickBooks has built a pretty good system to do that. 
for Absolutely. for the migration from desktop to online like not to be confused with pulling data out for other things but yeah. yeah yeah still it's you know it's kind of like the little engine that could right it mm -hmm. always is it's enough but it becomes not enough really quickly and you know that's part of christy's role here at third stage is when it becomes not enough really quickly uh, and you need to meet business needs avoid disruption avoid lost revenue those types of things, um, we come in and, and kind of help through that evaluation, which can be very difficult, uh, not only in the evaluation side, but then understanding uh, the system integrator, the vendor, how it, the internal team, how those resources all work together can be a, a very daunting and overwhelming process. Mm -hmm. um, and I know, uh, I think at this point, Christy, are you the most tenured employee at Third Stage? Second. <laughs> Second, who's first? Adam. Adam. Oh, I know him, but <laughs> <laughs> for some reason I thought you were here before Adam, but nope. uh, you, you know, you, this is kind of your wheelhouse. This is the, um, the ecosystem that you operate in. So, uh, so thank you so much for sharing that yeah, insight. Um, is there anything else that you'd like our, our audience to know um, or some best, best practices advice around QuickBooks or even small business technology in general? I think if you can find the link, there is that where we talked about when it's time to move away from QuickBooks. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a helpful resource, um, and we can put we can layer that into this. Oh but yeah, I'll put it in the a, description. Yeah, too. that's a good one for everybody. If you're kind of mm -hmm. on the fence of wanting to know, do I stay or do I go? It it would give you some helpful tips on that. Okay, great conversation. Thank you, Kyler and Christy. Good conversation about the evolution of QuickBooks moving from online to, or moving from desktop to online. Uh, some good threads there. We're going to touch on a little bit more detail. Kyler and I will come back and talk about that here in just a moment. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 81. We just had the interview clip that we played between Christy and yourself, Kyler, talking about QuickBooks. Tell us, uh, you know, what some of your takeaways or thoughts after after hearing that interview again. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I always like our conversations with Christy because her role here is very specialized, but it's also very broad. Um, you know, working in small businesses and mid-sized businesses, helping them evolve um, into kind of that high growth sphere is something she specializes in. And QuickBooks is one of those systems that it does what it does really well until it doesn't. And then all of a sudden, you really need to look at what the other options are. So I think the key takeaway here, Eric, that you know I'd like to get your feedback on too, is just if you are experiencing any sort of QuickBooks 
transition, whether it's forced, right, through going to the online version versus the desktop version, which isn't a huge um, difference, but there are some key differences as, as Christy outlined for us. But truly going through the evaluation process and, and understanding what are your future business strategies, what is your target operating model, what do you want to achieve, and then you know, what system really matches that. That evolution and um, evaluation process is not something you just do one time. It's something you continue to do as you grow as a business, especially if you're in a high growth small business space. Right. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And that's, I guess, good news, bad news. Good news is if you're, you know, finding that this is a relevant conversation, it means you're growing and you're successful. The bad news is it means you probably have to rethink your systems and how those technologies are going to support and help you scale for growth in the future. And I wonder if you could help us kind of um, look through the overall um, dichotomy of digital transformation in general for small business, because as Christy mentioned, a lot of times the decision makers for small business is budget. And when it comes to being able to afford maybe go to a NetSuite or an, another kind of mid-tier system that we recommend a lot if you are moving away from QuickBooks can be a significant investment. And not only on the, the software cost size, but the time and resources, it can also be a huge risk to the organization if it does work right an implementation failure for a small to mid-sized business can sometimes constitute bankruptcy so what are some considerations that these types of high-risk businesses should really be aware of when looking at a new software implementation or digital transformation of any kind I think the first is just to recognize what you mentioned, which is that there are risks and that the risks are probably higher than you realize and certainly higher than what software vendors will, will share with you. So once you have that on the table, then it becomes, then the question becomes, what do we, what do we do about it? How do we, how do we neutralize that risk? And it, and it starts with making sure that you don't bite off more than you can chew, you know, make sure that you're, maybe starting with replacing the basic finance and accounting functionality that you had in QuickBooks or whatever your legacy system is. And then you start to bolt on or you start to work in other more advanced capabilities that you don't have now. Too often organizations just try to bite it all off all at, this, at one time. They try a big bang approach and it, and it fails, or they just never get to the point of any sort of go log because they, they can't absorb that change in that small amount of time. So just have a realistic plan. You know, that's the other, the other part of it and, and be strategic and deliberate about technology. There's, there's a lot of, a lot of shelfware that gets sold out there. And what shelfware is, is you buy a bunch of software that you never use because it's either not adding value or it's not worth the cost and the res the resistance to change and all the heartache that goes along with implementing it. So you just want to be conservative. I guess I'd say it's probably the best way to put it. You'd be, be more measured and strategic about how you deploy new technologies and you can always speed up later. That's a lot easier, actually, than trying to buy off more than you can chew and then finding that you've got to throttle back and people get demoralized and people lose their jobs over that that way of thinking. So those are some of the things that come to mind there. Yeah, and, and I think the way Chrissy put it is adding that business advisory option. We totally understand the need in small businesses and, and mid-sized businesses, the need to kind of lean out on your project and, and be really mindful and intentional about the way that you spend money. 
but I, as, as we were kind of chatting about the, one of the main tiers of business that we see come back to us after the selection process is that smaller to mid-sized business, because it can be very difficult to navigate a system integrator that, you know, may not speak your language. You don't have a lot of times a, a full fledged, really big IT team, um, you know, they're constantly uh, being able to monitor and, and translate what software vendors might be saying. Uh, so I think investing in even just having that conversation with Pristine team is something that can be really huge. Also, we gave the resources of, we have a QuickBooks channel on our um, YouTube page that Christy talks a lot about migrating from any sort of smaller based software into a full-fledged ERP system. So if that is something you're considering, we highly recommend that you look at that. And as we mentioned, download that 2023 digital transformation report that has our top systems for small business and our strategies around what that looks like as far as implementation. Yeah, absolutely. Those are good uh, sort of parting words or good resources that the audience can take away to help mitigate some of the risks. And one last thing I'll throw in to the conversation to, on this thread, which you will also find in those same materials that you're referring to, Kyler, is to make sure that you have the risk mitigation framework and the right project governance during the implementation. And that entails oftentimes not only setting up the right project governance and decision-making, but also making sure you have the right quality assurance and the risk mitigation mechanisms in place, which a lot of organizations reach out to third stage or companies like third stage that are independent technology agnostic, and they can help identify and, um, and anticipate some of those risks before they become a problem. So I think that's a, another threat or another way to look at it is risk mitigation. And that's, that's something we cover in a lot of those materials you mentioned there below. So I want to uh, thank the audience here today for, for being here. Thank you, Kyler, for another great episode. Um, you can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, as well as all of the audio podcast platforms. We appreciate your time here today. Hope you found this, this uh, content helpful, and we look forward to seeing you next week on Transformation Ground Control. In the meantime, have a great week, and we will see you all soon. Take care.